everybody. We'll be continuing in Thessalonians today. And today we're going to be talking about immorality versus the freedom that comes from uh, God releasing us from the terrible prison that immorality can provide or, or encase us in. Um, for instance, the sexual revolution was heralded as um, freedom from restrictions of an old way of life concerning you know, uh, moral codes of people's sexual behavior and old school religion. Uh, the sexual revolution was heralded as freedom. Uh, we were free to express our sexuality and satisfy our sexual urges in any way we chose. And the Bible speaks a lot about sexual immorality. Um, and now, 60 years later, roughly, how free are we? And has this so-called revolution made us free? Are we freer than we were, say, a hundred years ago? And today uh, we're going to see that immorality, uh, especially in the area of sexuality, shuts a Christian out from the knowledge of God. And Paul makes this clear in Thessalonians. He asks the Thessalonians, in a way, um, is this a price that you're willing to pay, not knowing God for a brief sexual gratification that carries with it the, um, the damage that happens to the soul and the body from an immoral sexual life, and, and actually just in any immorality, uh, and we'll see that. So let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for the opportunity to be uh, studying this book, in, in both First and Second Thessalonians, and um, the freedom that comes from knowing God's Word, being able to know Him, and to be able to know uh, the manner in which he has so blessed us. So with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of learning your word, being able to sit before your word and be instructed by your Holy Spirit to see clearly what the truth is, to be able to sift through all the lies that are in the world that hold us in bondage. Uh, the bondage of immorality is, is a huge one for the human race. And Father, you have, and you alone have set us free from it. And so we ask, Father, that through your word that we each, all of us listening, would be set free if we're not free already. And if we are free from it, Father, that we ask that you keep us free. Uh, we All of us can go back to immoral behavior, and all of us are tempted by various sins. And so, Father, we ask that through your word that we would find the strength to soldier on in your plan and to seek your wisdom and your will. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, the theme of Thessalonians, both the first and the second book, is... And there are slight differences between the two, but it's in terms of the overall theme of them, they're both very similar when it comes to theme. 
Uh, and that is the encouragement to live a godly life despite the suffering that comes with living a godly life. And anybody who does in a world that doesn't live godly amongst people who don't live godly, that those who do live godly are going to be persecuted. The Lord told us this. Paul tells us this. All the writers tell us that this is a for sure, that we're going to suffer. Uh, that's what we looked at on Sunday. And we saw on Sunday that we can suffer for the wrong things. And those, those are the things we want to avoid. We'll see a bit of that again uh, in this lesson. And uh, there's also the suffering for the right things we want to embrace. We want to truly embrace the suffering that comes from doing the right thing, uh, meaning God's will. And to avoid the, this middle ground where we're uh, not really living the Christian life and not really being, uh, doing things that cause great misery in the natural world, you know, immoral things that, that wreck people's physical bodies and minds, we're avoiding that, but we're also not truly living the Christian life, and we're trying to avoid all sufferings of all kinds. And that doesn't work. It never works. Plus, you'll be disciplined by God if you do, and so you'll be suffering in that way. Uh, I encourage you all to read these epistles, because I'm not going verse by verse. As you'll see, I'll, I'm going to skip around in them a bit. We're going to be looking at main themes and, and moving around the books, but uh, to truly get a grasp of... Uh, to I'd say to, to better your experience with these books and all the books that we're going to look at this year, that you would spend some time reading through them. We'll do First uh, Thessalonians this week and Second Thessalonians next week and then move on to the next, um, which I think is Galatians. So we noted in Acts chapter 17 that Paul found many converts in Thessalonica. It's the, uh, not the first city he, he visited in Macedonia. It's the second city. Uh, he started in Philippi, which he found there was suffering for him and a lot of retaliation against his ministry in Philippi, the same in Thessalonica. But <clears throat> it seems in Thessalonica that the, for those who were left behind, he couldn't remain there, uh, not only because his mission was to move from town to town, but he had to actually get out of Thessalonica quickly. He wasn't there for more than probably a month, two at the most. And uh, be, because of the persecution, they, they wanted to arrest and kill him. Uh, he, he fled. And so he left behind a brand new church, brand new believers. And they lived in a place where they were greatly persecuted for this gospel that Paul brought. Bringing, they were persecuted for the truth. We find in Acts and in Thessalonians that a lot of Gentiles in Thessalonica were delivered by the gospel, perhaps more Gentiles than Jews. Some of these Gentiles were those who were in the synagogue being trained to become Jews. So the first place that Paul went when he went to the city was to go to the synagogue and preach that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ, was the Messiah, and that from the Old Testament scriptures, it was clear that the Messiah had to die and be resurrected again, and that he had to suffer, die, and be resurrected again. And, it, and uh, many of the Gentiles who were in the, the synagogue, again, these Gentiles are being, they're trying to convert to Judaism, uh, which took a, it was a long process. They uh, were converted, and there were other Gentiles, too, who were converted who were not a part of the synagogue. Um, what all the Gentiles have in common, though, 
is they come from a pagan world. Uh, that is far different than the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, it doesn't matter what city you're in, your family, the Jews all lived in their own communities. They went to synagogue together. And if you were a Jewish child, you were brought up under the Mosaic Law. And so you were, whether you followed it or not, whether you were a little brat or not, you were still under the uh, great pressure of morality that the Mosaic Law brings. So all Jews were brought up in a moral code. The Gentiles were not. And the Gentile world is completely different. They're really reared in an amoral environment. The Gentiles are not under a strict morality. Uh, now, of course, amongst Gentiles, morality may vary. You have, if someone's like, say, a Stoic, uh, they're pretty moral. They're more moral than, say, an Epicurean or somebody who didn't adhere to anything. Uh, someone who was just a, a worshiper of their local deity, uh, which uh, in Thessalonica, I, I'm not exactly sure what their local deity was, but, um, you know, in that, we know from pagan religion that sexuality, uh, all kinds of behavior in, in uh, diet restrictions were not there. And so the Jews were brought up in a much stricter sense when it came to morality. The Bible tells us that, therefore, you know, they, they're brought up in a world of pagan gods. Uh, whether it's the Greek pantheon. The Greek pantheon at this time, you know, like Zeus and Apollo and Hera and all those, they were not so much believed upon as being uh, real deities. But it was, it, they had, people adhered to a kind of mixture of both Greek pagan religion and Eastern pagan religion, because remember at this time the Roman Empire is everywhere. So religions from the East and from the West all kind of mingled together in the empire. And uh, so people kind of made this conglomerate, we call it syncretization of religion. Whatever, you know, whatever it was, it wasn't very moral. Uh, the Bible tells us that pagan gods were simply demons in worldly dress. The fact that there were so many of them that had different emphasis, you know, some gods were about wisdom, some gods were about power, some gods were about sexuality. Uh, Dionysus or Bacchus was about wine and Aphrodite about Eros love and so on. And the reason why there's so many of them is because now one thing appeals to all people. So some people are going to go more towards wisdom and other people are going to go more towards sexual immorality, what, what have you. Um, uh, however, when it comes to things that affect the most people, and a, as I started with, we're going to be, we speak of sexuality here because this is in Thessalonians as well. Paul is very clear to tell them to abstain from sexual immorality. And why would he tell them that? So emphatically, it's because they were involved in it. They grew up in a society that was involved in it. We've grown up in a society that is involved in that. Sex is everywhere. It's in advertising. It's in the movies. It's in the TV shows. It's everywhere. It's even in the political arena. It's all over the media. Uh, and so the uh, <coughs> so something like that. Sexual stimulation, that affects a great many people. 
It doesn't affect everybody in the same way, but it affects a great many people. Uh, the most popular websites, if we look at, if you, you just see uh, the data on what websites are visited the most, philosophy is not going to come up at the top of that list. Even athletic, athleticism, like sports websites, don't even come up near the top of that list. What does every year come up to the top of that list is pornography. Every year. Without, uh, <coughs> it, it's visited more than Google is, which is astounding. And what does that show us? That sexuality pervades the society. It pervades mankind. And we're greatly affected by it. However, the, the pagan gods, like Sebel, uh, uh, it's, I think it's pronounced Sibyl, but it, it's not spelt the same way. But that, that was the, a grand goddess that the Romans had brought over from Asia Minor. And they loved this goddess. She was all, she was the queen mother uh, of and, and and not a not a good character had no character actually. Eros, uh, the god of love, Zeus, Bacchus, the god of wine. We don't really use those names anymore. Those names of uh, you know they're still in antiquity. However, what these gods represent, whether it be alcohol, sex, philosophy, wisdom. You know, so wisdom is a lot less bad than being, you know, an alcoholic or a sex addict. However, if you're a wisdom addict, you, you get along better in the world. But if you're not a worshiper of God, that idol and that demon, though far more easier on your body, is actually still keeping you from the knowledge of God. And so, you know, you have a certain benefit and people say, well, it's not so bad. Well, comparatively, No. You know, there's good, better, best, and there's bad, worse, and worst when it comes to behaviors. Uh, but Satan will give the human race whatever he can to keep us away from the knowledge of God. And it turns out that things like sexuality and other addictions that are at the top of that list, uh, of the list of addictions, actually affect far more people than other things. So, um, look at 1 Thessalonians 1.8. So, all of us were brought up in some form of pagan worship. Whether it was, um, you know, uh, promoted in your home by your parents openly, and some people are brought up in that, uh, some kind of grave immorality, whether it was brought up in your home or you know you saw it on TV or yeah, I did, I've done some research on because I'm talking a bit about sexual immorality as Paul is here. I did a little research on Freud and it was um, you know he's a big player in the modern world's jump into the arena of sexuality and he's influenced the uh, the society a great deal in that. And, uh, you know, it, as I'm said, I remember being taught in grade school that there was an id, ego, and superego. And that was drilled in us like, yeah, of course, it's, everything's like that. And we find out now it's a bunch of BS. Like, he, he didn't really get much right. But yet his influence is incredible, even though he's completely wrong. And he's not alone. There's many who have been so very wrong, but yet... It, it, it so infects the society. 
that we're you know we're just all we, you know people just give into it, and, and it's a truly amazing phenomenon. The only one who's going to set us free from our pagan worship is the gospel, which is really another way of saying Christ is the only one who sets anyone free from the pagan worship that they've been brought up in. So 1 Thessalonians 1.8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's amazing to see here, uh, and and quite interesting, how Paul uses the return of Christ uh, very uh, openly in this letter. I don't mean openly, but he speaks of it more in these letters than than he normally does in his other ones. And for whatever reason... He uses that as a motivation to encourage them uh, that despite the fact that they're surrounded by persecution and they're surrounded by uh, a pagan world that wants to draw them back into the immorality they've been delivered from, that you know, he reminds them, look, Jesus is coming back. And so, you know, he could be coming back today or tomorrow. And so, you know, the, this race that we're running isn't forever. This suffering that you're going through isn't permanent. But also when Christ returns, he's going to judge us. And so, uh, you know, it's in, and you have motivation on both sides. Because as we know from the scripture, it says, look, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. Or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If, if we don't fear the Lord and, and fear in the proper way to say, look, if I break his will... And I'm a sinner, I'm going to do it, but if I break his will in terms of a lifestyle, if I am overrun in my soul and my heart by whatever sin, in this case we're focusing on immorality today, but whatever the sin is, then I should fear that loss because it does come with a great cost. And what Paul's going to bring out here in Thessalonians is the cost of this is the knowledge of God. You won't know him. And is that worth it to you as a believer? Now, of course, we're talking to believers. So, we note again in verse 9 that God that they turned from idols to God, the, to serve the living and true God. The gods of their forefathers, the pagan gods, were those images that were in temples all over the city, in various cities. There would have been in Thessalonica as well. Uh, public places. Also, people had their own particular private idols in their own homes. Uh, they were these small little things that they would carry around with them. They carry them, uh, you know, in their on them when they traveled, and uh, that is renounced also. And what does Paul reveal of them? That these things are nothing. As Paul says and writes in 1 Corinthians eight four. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. There are no idols. You say, well, yeah, there is. There's Zeus. <laughs> well, there isn't. He doesn't exist. 
there's a tiny little statue that someone has made and says that's that's Zeus or you know that's Bacchus or somebody, but that's not it's not real. <coughs> the scripture reveals to us that what's behind, what's really behind these idols that exist today, just without with different names. They're the same idols though, same ones. They just they're not called the same thing. That there are demons behind them. That these things are uh, a creation of the kingdom of darkness. They're a creation of Satan, designed particularly for the human race. Satan's no idiot. He knows what we like. He knows what's going to draw us. And that's what he does. That's what he makes. He makes it in this world. He makes it to draw us. <coughs> I, I know my... you know as. A, if you, once you get older in the Christian life and you've progressed a bit and you know your weaknesses well and you've fought your weaknesses and get some victory over your weaknesses, it's amazing to see how many... See, because if, you're, if your life is overwhelmed by your weaknesses, you don't see the temptations out there because you keep giving in to them. I mean, I guess you see them, but you don't really see them for what they are because you're not fighting against them. So, the, you know, here's the temptation. Sure, you know, here's the temptation. Sure, you, you don't really know anything about it. It's when you resist them that you start to see them. And they're everywhere. It's amazing to me. They are everywhere. Whatever your thing is, if you are resisting it, I mean, truly with the power of God saying no, and you've gained victory, which all of us have to do, you'll see it everywhere. It is everywhere. These idols pervade all society. And so therefore, our modern world is no different from theirs. Our, our, our idols now are oftentimes on phones and computers or, or in media or on television. Just things that they didn't have, but they were there. They were there. They were everywhere. So as Paul tells us, they, they are nothing. They're nothing. So what they're peddling is obviously has to be nothing. So take a skip over to John 17. You can hold your place, Thessalonians. Herein lies the misery of the heathen. And herein can lie the misery of the Christian. John 17, 3, this is Jesus' prayer the night before he died, his great priestly prayer in 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice, this is eternal life. Now we gain eternal, he's not saying this is how you get eternal life, that's, that's not here. He's describing what eternal life is. You and I, as believers, possess eternal life by faith in Christ. And therefore, we possess it, we have it, but to live it, you know, to, have, to know what it is, and therefore live it, is to know God. And the, so the one true God here would be a reference to the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to know the Father and the Son. So note, go back to John 16, 14. Let the part of this out and... For some silly reason. Do, do, do. 
And He, verse 14, is the Holy Spirit, will glorify Me. So Jesus says, I'm going to send Him to you, right? So, And we all possess Him. We possess the Holy Spirit within. He indwells every one of us who are believers. He will glorify Me and He will take of Mine and disclose it to you. All right, so what is the Holy Spirit's mission within us is to reveal the things of the Son. As He said in 17.3, what is eternal life? It's to know the Son. And the Holy Spirit is in us to give us this knowledge that we know the Son, which shows us that without the Spirit, we can't really know Him. But fortunately for us, we have the Spirit within. So as we humbly look to the Word of God, we know confidence that we are going to find out who the Lord is. We're going to know Him. But notice the next verse. He says in verse 15, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And so to know the Son, in verse 15, is to know the Father. And so to know God is truly eternal life. That's wonderful. So knowing Him is actually going to deliver us. Because what Paul is going to say is, your immoral behavior prevents you from knowing God. And this, the lie that is out there in certain Christian circles that I can live an immoral life and still know God, you cannot. It, it crushes that lie. It's a lie. You cannot live an immoral life and know God. You can't. And we must know that. Now, what? so you might say, well, okay, pastor, define immoral life. I can't do that for you. You have to do that for yourself. You have to gird yourself, and like, like God says, gird yourself like a man and figure it out. Because all of us are sinners. Therefore, what constitutes an immoral life? And you can determine that between you and God. Because all of us are going to do immoral things from time to time. You know, none of us are perfect. But what, to what extent of immoral practice, frequency, constitutes an immoral life? constitutes the fact that you're not actually taking care of this vessel, which is your body. What is that? And as a priest, you're a believer priest, I, I'm not, unless the Bible gave me a direct definition of that, I, if it did, I'd tell you, but it ain't there. Each of us for ourselves have to determine that. And you'll know. It'll be very clear. Because don't forget, God the Holy Spirit was in us to reveal to us. So, pagan moral weakness stems from not knowing God. Paganism is just so incredibly weak. You know, why has Christianity lasted for thousands and thousands of years? Why has Christianity changed the world? Did Greek mythology change the world? Is it still around? It's not. The things that Satan wanted it to do are still around, but it's not under the same name. Which shows you that it's just weak. He has to it fails and he has to repackage it and send it out there. You know, paganism is effective in destroying people's lives, but it is not effective in building anything. All it does is destroy. That's why it doesn't last. So as it destroys the people, it really peters out and then it gets repackaged and published again. 
under different guise, a different name. But it has no power because it doesn't know God. But Christianity has survived. And in fact, even Judaism that has rejected Jesus as Messiah has survived. And really, they're the only two religions that have survived. I say Hindu, uh, so, you know, Hinduism is far more modern and so is Islam. But uh, both of those, they're, they're dead religions and they're only perpetuated by, you know, really by, uh, by force. You know, Christianity is free to anybody who wants it and it has truly survived and changed the entire world. No, nothing else has done that. And why is that? Even for those who are unbelievers, it's changed them. Because it is truly that powerful. So the, the key here is to know God. That's what we get from this. Keep learning. But you can be completely immoral and have a vast knowledge of the Scripture. And just take the Pharisees, for instance. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes in the Gospels. They're horrible people. And they know the Old Testament Scripture better than anybody. They know it back and front. And they don't know anything because they don't know God. Superficial academic knowledge is not going to change your behavior. Right? Any behavior modification treatment that's ever been tried for the human race has never worked. The only thing that works to change a person's behavior is for their hearts to change at the base of their hearts. The very, the very fabric of their heart has to change. And the only thing that does that is the knowledge of God through the Scripture and the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to make it clear. If that happens, our hearts change through and through. It takes time, but our hearts do change through and through. And then our behavior changes in a way that we change. As people we change, because God is transforming us. And it is truly, well, you know, it's, at times it's scary because, you know, you're, gonna, you're not going to recognize yourself. You know, who like, wait, didn't we have, we had a, um, was it, I forget when it was, last week sometime, but, you know, who likes change? Yeah, give me change. Change it all. Change my whole life. You know, none of us want it. We just want everything to stay the same. Same routine, same me, same thing. And God's like, uh-uh, no. I am all about change, and I need to change you. Uh, we white-knuckle that. God has a way of showing us and doing it. So we know, and it always bears repeating. I've already said it, but I'll repeat it again. You don't really truly know God unless you concede your life to him. You are not going to know God unless you concede and give your life to him. Uh, and what does this mean to give my life to him? Because, again, it gets back to the same question. I say, Pastor, I'm a sinner. What do you, what do you mean give my I mean, you want me to be perfect. I'm not, nor does God ask you to be perfect. This is the, the acknowledgement, and truly, not just verbally, but in your heart, that you know that you have to give all of your will to your Lord. Right Now, think of those titles. I'm a child of God. He's the Father. Should I obey His will? 
Duh. He's the Lord, and I'm his slave. As the Bible calls us slaves of the Lord. We're doulases. That's a Greek word for slave. Bond slave. Paul, he opens all of his letters with it. Not all. I don't think it's all of them, but many. I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. A bond slave of Jesus Christ. So if we're slaves, should we obey our Lord? It's a no-brainer. Well, there's certain circles of Christianity that want to kind of circumvent that. I know, because I was, I was in them. I know they exist. And it's, you know, it's kind of like the Corinthians, where they're like, well, come on now, it's, we're forgiven, it's all grace, you know, we shouldn't have to try so hard, and onward. And the problem is, when we don't give, we don't acknowledge that we have to obey all of God's will, is that we won't know Him. And if we don't know Him, then we don't experience eternal life. John seventeen three. And if we don't experience eternal life, what life are we experiencing? Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says in verse chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. See, the Word of God in us does what? It works. It does its work in us who believe. The Thessalonians, to Paul's great delight, received the Word of God as from God. And they turned out to be a terrific church. Uh, we, we'll see this as we progress this week and next week. They were, they were marvelous. Uh, they, they longed for God's Word, and therefore they were changed. And... Paul tells them how, how wonderful they are. They've only been saved for a few months. They don't know hardly any theology. There hasn't been a theological... The Bible's not even printed. There's only a few letters written. Of course, the, the verbal um, communication of truth and theology has been given. But these are brand new believers, and yet they've, they've been able to already mature greatly there's a, you know there's a lie floating around that says you have to spend you know umpteen years of bible study to to actually before you start doing anything good but that's not true if we no matter what we know and it takes umpteen years to know god it does but for whatever we know now even if you're saved a month whatever you know if you submit to it, you will mature rapidly. The problem with the, the with Christianity is people. Uh, uh, the problem with Christianity is is Christians. The problem with Christianity is is our our lack of submission, our lack of obedience and trust. The journey of God. Of the knowledge of God starts when you realize that all your life has to be handed over to God. And again, I try to clarify that. It's not you saying, all right, I'm going to be sinless from here on out. Not at all. It's that you're saying, all my will is his will. I don't have my own will. And that, that is absolutely right, because your own will stinks anyway. You know, what good has it done you? 
you alone without God, what wisdom do you have? What ability do you have? What, what uh, eyesight do you have in your heart to be able to know the right way to go? And none of us do. And so in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's true fear. Uh, the Greek word used in the New Testament is phobos. It's where we get phobia from. It's, it can be translated no other way. Uh, I don't know what the Hebrew word is. I don't take Hebrew until next year. <laughs> I'm dreading it. But uh, the, you know, the, this fear is a legit fear that if I don't follow the Lord, it's going to go bad for me. And it will. God is gracious, He's forgiving, He's patient. You can be following your own way for a long time, but eventually, without huge ramifications, but eventually it catches up. And that you should fear. I, you know, I shouldn't have the attitude that say, well, you know, I'll live like hell now. I've probably got ten good years left. <laughs> they won't be good. And when you get to the end of it, you, you won't like what you see. And a lot of damage is done that can't be undone. That's another fear. Now, it's one of the things that crosses my mind from time to time is how many years do I have left? And, you know, I don't have time to be messing around anymore with, you know, I don't mean anymore, but, you know, did, what are you going to do with this time? It's only here on earth that we can glorify Him in the way that, that, that we can outside of heaven. So, this ignorance, like the pagans don't know God, so this ignorance is the cause of their moral weakness. And of course, if they're not saved, then it matches their peril. Idols, which are demons in worldly dress, never ever point to righteousness. As I said, some ideologies are more moral than others. Take, for instance, the Stoics. The Stoics uh, were an extremely moral people. But they lacked love. The Stoics lacked love for others. They were not sacrificial in their love. And so they had a moral code without love. That <coughs> is not divine. Remove divine love from your moral code and you're self-righteous. There's a lot of moral people running around. They naturally tend towards it for whatever reason. And there's a lot of them who are self-righteous because they're moral, but they lack divine love. Therefore, self-righteous. And that's not righteous. In a more modern sense, we examine the sexual revolution of the postmodern era. In the 1900s, Sigmund Freud gave the world a myth. He wasn't the first to have the idea. This was fascinating to me. Freud was not the first to think of sexual gratification as the essence of mankind. But he was the first to back it up with science, so-called. He was the first one to say, look, this I have determined scientifically. And so people were able to say, well, you know, you've heard this with the pandemic, right? Can't deny the science. This people did. And it was a myth. It was an absolute myth with science as its background. The myth is the idea that sex, in terms of sexual desire and sexual fulfillment, is the real key to human existence. Sex is what it means to be human. 
Nobody looking at Western society today could fail to see it. If an alien came to Earth now and looked around Western society, they'd be like, you guys are absorbed with this. Uh, Sex dominates our culture in a way unknown to our ancestors, even in the early modern period, never mind the Middle Ages. From art to politics to advertisement, sex is omnipresent. Thinking of human beings as fundamentally defined by their sexual desire is now virtually intuitive. And it's gotten to the point where people are now choosing their own sex and identifying themselves by their sexual orientation. And it's supposed to identify them. The sexual revolution came from the syncretization of several earlier ideas. A few of the major hitters, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, not, not Jacques Cousteau, he, he was a scientist, but Jacques Rousseau, Karl Marx, uh, Darwin, Freud, David Hume, there's others, many, who were very influential, every one of them wrong, but that didn't matter. They told the world that people were defined by a selfhood that they possessed within themselves, their inner psychological selves. This understanding led to a focus on feelings as the center to human life. How do you feel? In other words, it was no longer that God thought you what it was no longer that what God thought of you that mattered, but what you thought of you. Right? And this psychology and psychiatry hit the world like a whirlwind. All of us have been brought up in it. You know, it's a paganism. And the God is you. It's no longer what God thinks of you. It's what you think of you. So you're not defined by your creator, but how you feel inside. Take this quote from Rousseau. This is from his work, Confessions. The quote, the particular object of my confessions is to make known my inner self exactly as it was in every circumstance of my life. It is the history of my soul that I promised, and to relate it faithfully, I require no other memorandum. All I need to do, all I need do, as I have done up till now, is to look inside myself. And Rousseau was not a believer in original sin. He thought everybody had good inside of them and they just had to get it. They just had to go find it. And him and others thought, you know, society, you know, Marx went more economics, but kind of the same thing. Society's holding me back. Religion is holding me back. I need to go in here and find out who I am. So God and Christianity were seen as holding man back, holding him down, not allowing man to reach his potential. And ironically, the smart ones like Freud knew that if everybody was able to just give in to themselves as they felt they should, that society would fall apart. They knew this. So the, rea- so the real humanity was a pursuit of one's own happiness. Happiness became a psychological state And Freud made that state entirely founded on sexual gratification. So he took Rousseau, Marx, Darwin, and all the others, and he said, yeah, they're all right, but the real underlying happiness is in sexuality. The purpose of sex left the Bible behind. The Bible's what? Commitment. Sexuality is in marriage, in a committed marriage. 
And it's also for procreation, for the family, to make a family with two biological parents. But the purpose of sex left the Bible behind and went straight to the genitals. And I'm not trying to be crass, but that's the reality. The reality is, and it overwhelms society, that the Bible was put aside and life went to people's genitals. How they could gratify themselves sexually. <clears throat> That's a, and, you know, God put aside for genitals is a great definition of pornography. In fact, the whole purpose of it, the whole purpose of what it meant to be human, went to that place. True happiness became sexual gratification. And so unhappiness was the corrupting powers that came from God who placed restrictions on things that we thought were truly human. God's restricting us. We should be able to have sex when we want, with who we want, how we want. That's, quote-unquote, freedom. So the idol of sexual gratification became the all-powerful throughout history. And it destroyed the family, too. You know, you, you don't, you know, birth control came and, you know, all of this stuff came that enabled people to gratify themselves without procreating and actually without getting married and, and not, you know, making families. And the family fell apart. The strong head of the family, the father, was weakened immensely. We see it now. And so in our postmodern era, the idol of sexual gratification is the greatest psychiatrist, psychologist, the greatest physician, the greatest scientist, the greatest politician, and the path to happiness. We know in Corinth, where uh, by the myth, Aphrodite was born in Corinth. So she had a temple in Corinth, and there were a thousand prostitutes in that temple. Under, their job title was temple priestess. <laughs> yeah, not so much. They're prostitutes. And they affected the Corinthians, who, under when Paul taught them about holiness, they were like, eh, I'm not going to write that down. But when, God, when Paul taught them about forgiveness and eternal life under grace, they were like, oh, great. They wrote that down, and then they went to Aphrodite's temple. So when Paul writes to, <clears throat> to the Gentiles in Thessalonica, whom the gospel freed from idolatry, he is sure to tell them that the old ways of the gods that they used to follow are no longer an option, which included sexual immorality. Paul exhorts them to leave behind the old ways of the demon gods, not because they need to do that to earn anything with God, but because they now belong to God. And it's the same argument James used, right? James said, look, you are in Christ your first fruits." Don't have just faith without works. You're designed for these works. So do them. You know, the motivation is who you are. Paul does the same thing and he does it here. So go to 1 Thessalonians 4.1. 1 Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, and Paul knows that because he sent Timothy to Thessalonica to check on them. Timothy came back and said they were doing wonderfully. So, <clears throat> again, 
As you receive from us instructions on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So there's, you know, do we ever stand still in the spiritual life? If we stand still, we'll end up going backwards. Uh, We cannot rest on our laurels and say, well, you know, we've done good so far or we know enough so far. We have to keep learning. We have to keep studying. We have to keep growing. We have to keep uh, putting our faith out there in, in a deeper and deeper commitment because we never arrive. And, and that's what he says here. He says, excel still more. This is the same word that the Lord used when he described his disciples. It's parison. Uh, this Greek word means to abound. And in Matthew 4, 5.47, Jesus said, if you greet your brothers only, what more? And that word more, there it is, is this word that Paul uses here. Paul says again, I want you to excel still more. That word more is the same word. So what more isn't good English. So what he truly is saying here is how are you excellent? How are you an overcomer? How are you above the earth? Because you're in me. If you greet your brothers only, well, you know, unbelievers do that. So, how, you know, you're greeting those you love. What Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is we need to greet our enemies. And much more than that, right, we have to have this love in us that does for our enemies what we would do for our loved ones. To pray for them, to do good to them. And so he says of them, how are you excellent? Paul says here, I want you to be excellent. He said, you're doing great, Thessalonians, but I want you to do more. Verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now here, sanctification would mean in life, to be sanctification, the word holy, it's the word for holy, and it means to be separate unto God and meaning away and away from this world. And therefore, in our behavior, for this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness in behavior, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word porneos, where we get pornography from. And in this context, it definitely means sexual immorality. Porneos doesn't always mean sexual immorality, but here it's very clear So he defines for them sanctification. Why does he go straight to sexual immorality in the beginning of his list? Because he's been to Thessalonica. He knows the place. He knows these people and where they've been from. He's met them. He's he's stayed at least a month in the city and met them, spoke to them, and he knows the society that they came from. They live in a world where sexual immorality is not immoral. It's not frowned upon. These people are not under the Mosaic Law by any means. We saw in Thessalonica that when they couldn't find Paul, they found this guy Jason who was helping Paul, and they dragged him out of his house and dragged him to the magistrate and, and accused him. Um, is that legal? <laughs> it's certainly not fair. And you know, and the Mosaic Law had laws of jurisprudence. That's why they couldn't condemn Jesus without two witnesses. Because Jewish law said you need that. With Jason, they had zero witnesses. They dragged him out of his house anyway. There's no laws here. 
This is Rome, this is Roman Empire. They do what they want. And one of the things that they do what they want is what they want is sexual immorality and sexuality in any way. So Paul says here, look, abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. His own vessel. Hmm. Does that mean like your water basin or your grain holder? I don't know what they're... They're wine vessels. No, it means your body. It's, it's wonderful here how Paul uses this word vessel. We'll get to that in a second. Possess, you know how. So, right, there's a knowledge to this, what he's going to explain coming up. You, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That's your body, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, unbelievers who don't, what? Know God. Right, these pagans, what is their, why are they so immoral? Why do they care less about their sexual sexuality, whatever they do? Why do they care less about their passions? Even though the Greeks are not stupid, they see what happens to people when they give in to lust. Right? It's not just because it's ancient world. If you spend your life drinking wine, that it doesn't have a grave effect on how you look and how you behave. Of course it does. So as I was doing some research on uh, Bacchus or he was Dionysus in the Greeks, to the Greeks, Bacchus to the Romans, is the god of wine. And the god of wine had this wonderful, gracious, happy side to him. You know, they would write all these stories about what the gods did. And then Bacchus also had this awful side to him, like this like a, he's a killer. He's uh, uh, he would he would do terrible things to people. And you know, people read. You know, why would you have a story about the god of wine who has, does all these wonderful things and makes everybody happy, and then on in other stories he makes everybody miserable and kills them. And it's plain because alcohol does the same thing. It makes everybody happy for a while. And we're not talking about moderation here. If you drink in moderation, bravo. But, you know, if, if, if you're an imbiber, <laughs> it makes you happy, 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 and then miserable, miserable, miserable. And over time, it destroys you. Outside of tobacco, that's the number two addiction in the West, alcohol. And that, that, that counts not those who drink in moderation, but those who abuse. It's number two. It's a terrible plight on people in their souls. And you know, you're not going to hear teaching on it, on how to escape it, how to get healed, whether it's sexuality, sexual sins, pornography, alcoholism, drug addiction, money addiction, uh, people addiction. You know, you want people to love you. Whatever. Where are you going to get the solutions to make you whole and that this vessel that you're living in is not something you fear because addiction makes people afraid, but makes you have a hold a vessel, as he says here in sanctification and honor. You're only going to get it from the pulpits. And if the pulpits are all just, you know, there's many pulpits that are just teaching, you know, Lord, love Jesus, you know, all's, all's good. That is not going to help. 
It helps a little to some in, in, in small period, small places, but it doesn't help. For all the churches who have given over to the sexuality, they say, oh, no, no, homosexuality is fine. There's plenty of churches that do that. Big churches who have actually have, you know, whatever, I'm not going to go into that, but they, have, they actually have homosexual ministers. And, and they're in a, you know, what? They say, well, you know, when, he, when they're talking about homosexuality in the Bible, that's, you know, thousands of years ago. It doesn't apply to us. It's absolutely wrong. You're, not, you're helping no one. You're helping no one. It's a weak, weak message. Our bodies must be held in honor. Notice, again in verse 5. I'm almost out of time here. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. This passage, passage crushes the lie that a Christian can live an immoral lifestyle and know God. Why do they live an immoral lifestyle? Why do their lustful passions rule their bodies? Because they don't know God. If my lustful passions are ruling my body, I cannot know God. And as a believer, this is one of the many motivations to say this has to change. Now, you know, I can't, it depends on the individual. You know, what, it, what does it take for you to change? Well, first and foremost, it's the knowledge of God's Word and prayer and more knowledge of God's Word under humility in the Holy Spirit and you will find victory. Each one of us is different. Um, and so the motivation here is that we cannot know God. This, we cannot know God and live an immoral lifestyle. We can have biblical knowledge and live an, all, all, an immoral lifestyle. Again, Pharisees. Pharisees had a, a incredible biblical knowledge. But Jesus said they were the, their, that they obeyed their father, the devil. And then, so this, la- this uh, last part here, this his own vessel. Uh, this word vessel is the word for instrument. So it means that Paul is viewing the body. He could have used the word soma, which is the Greek word for body, but he doesn't. He uses vessel, skouros, something like that. It was on my last vocabulary test. I've already forgotten it. But uh, in, in this, this word means that your body is viewed as an instrument and therefore, your instrument is under your control. Your instrument is under your control. Now, unlike pagan myths that saw the human body as inherently evil, God does not. God tells us to control it. And that we have the spirit with the spirit within, put in my head, the spirit within and the word within will give us the power to control it. And therefore, I mean, if you look at it as a musical instrument, which of course I picked a cello, is, you know, what, what, how does a musical instrument perform well? It's got to be in good shape. It's got to be in tune. You've got to know how to play it. You've got to learn the music. You've got to play the right piece. You know, there's a right piece for a right situation. You don't play like a band march at a funeral. Uh, you play the right piece for the right situation. And, but we're not alone. We're in a body and therefore, all of us have to play together. And that means we all have to be on the same page. We all have to be playing the same piece. 
And we all have to take care of ourselves spiritually. As Paul writes, I close here, in 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel. Same word that Paul used here in in, uh, Thessalonians. He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified. Same word that Paul uses in Thessalonians. Useful to the master, prepared for every good work. There's only one way. It's not as though God had multiple ways to choose for himself and he picked the best one. God has only one way, and it's the way of righteousness. This is what is presented to us. And with God being set free from paganism, set free from the immorality of paganism, and now we live unto God, we can escape it all. But to escape it all takes the Word and the Spirit and the power of the spiritual life. And while we're doing that, not just superficial knowledge, but the submission to God so that we really truly learn what the Word of God is. Remember, eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. And to know them, we've got to submit to them. And if we do that slowly over time, we will come to know the Lord. And as we know the Lord... so. As we said, it's being overrun by immorality, I can't know the Lord. If I know the Lord, I won't be overrun by immorality. So as I, as I learn of Him, which I can only learn of Him by submitting to Him and learning the Scripture and submitting to it, then my immoral self will go away. Not always. It will tempt. But you will gain victory over it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the Word of God. Thank you for, in this this letter, that uh, as with all your Scripture, Father, it does not uh, lighten the truth. It does not water it down. It tells us exactly what is true and and boldly. And when we learn the truth and how boldly it is presented and know our enemy and his schemes, and the devil can't hide behind his lies when we know the truth. And therefore, we can see those lies. We see those temptations, Father. And we say no, so that we may live as unto you, to gain power over ourselves and to hold this vessel that is contaminated with a sin nature, but to truly hold it in sanctification and in honor unto you and in glory, in your glory. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.